Coming up on Twitch, it's me, Ian Thompson, standing in for Leo Laporte, who's gone south of the border. Joining me will be Padre in Vatican City and Brianna Wu over in Massachusetts, and we'll be going over the latest Facebook name change and, of course, the leaks from the Facebook papers. Windows XP turned 20 this week. We'll be discussing what it was like to use and why people are still using it. We go hands-on with the new MacBook Pro, one that's actually been delivered to one of our guests, and we'll be discussing Jeff Bezos's plans for Orbital Reef, the new orbital space station which will be a mixed business park all up next podcasts you love from people you trust this This is twit this is twit this week in tech episode 847 recorded on saturday october the 30th 2021 numb to dongle town This episode of This Week in Tech is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Delve into your next title on Audible with Audible Plus. New members can try Audible Plus for 30 days. Download the Audible app and get started with a free trial at audible.com slash twit. Or text twit to 500-500. And by ExpressVPN. Stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. For three extra months free with a one-year package, go to expressvpn.com slash twit. And by BlockFi. BlockFi's Bitcoin Rewards Credit Card lets you earn an unlimited 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all qualifying purchases, plus a bonus of $25 in crypto after you make your first purchase. Sign up today at BlockFi.com slash twit. And by Privacy.com. Privacy lets you buy things online using virtual cards instead of having to use your real ones, protecting your financial identity on the Internet. Right now, new customers automatically get $5 to spend on their first purchase. Go to Privacy.com slash twit to sign up now. Hello, this is another Twits. Uh, Leo Laporte is down in Mexico at the moment, so I shall be standing in and filling his very large shoes. Uh, my name is Ian Thompson from The Register, and we have a trio of technologists on the show this week. Um, we have from the Vatican City, Padre, a familiar person uh, here in uh, uh, on the Twit thing, and Brianna Wu over in Massachusetts, looking very dashing in that cap. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to be leading a revolution today on the show. I hope you'll all join me. We're overthrowing the studio. Leo's not here. And now, finally, the power will be to the people, meaning us. You're letting the you're letting the cat out of the bag. I've got the army outside <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> no, I've got the cats. Well, yes, you have the Vatacats, of course, which are uh, always a always a tremendous, tremendously fun thing to uh, to hang around with, and I'm sure they're used to. Okay, so we've got an exciting show this week. Um, when we were originally planning it out, we'd think the Facebook papers had just come out. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, we'll cover it, but let's try and do something else. And then, of course, Zuckerberg dropped his bomb, and uh, Facebook is metasizing, it seems, um, in possibly the bad way. But um, so we'll be covering that. It's, of course, it's been earnings week as well, so there'll be some elements of that. Uh, we'll be looking at Jeff Bezos's plans for a business park in space. Um, and the right to repair movement got a big step forward this week, so that'll need covering. And, of course, the rest of the news from around the tech industry and uh, whatever else comes up. So let's get, crack on with Twit. 
Okay, so the elephant in the room. Uh, this week, um, after facing a weeks and weeks of very bad news stories over the Facebook papers, uh, former British Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg has been earning his million dollar salary and taking a fall for it, just as he did for the Liberal Party back in the UK. <laughs> and um, yes, so we appear to have Facebook is no more. There is now Muse. It's all metaverse. Oh, sorry, it's uh, meta. Sorry, rather on Muse. Uh, it's oh god. It's all. Um, it's basically a, a good time for a name change. It's change. It seems. So, um, will it work, Brianna Padre? You know, I'm I'm very much reminded uh, when I was coming of age here uh, in the United States, uh, we had a company called ValueJet in uh, the 90s that had an absolutely abysmal track record uh, to the point that there uh, there were a late night punchline year after year, and uh, people just didn't want to fly that airline. So, what did they do? Uh, did they radically change their their uh, policies? No, they uh, changed their name to something else and just kept on uh, conducting business because uh, their name was so toxic they couldn't move any uh, move any more forward with it. Uh, I'm really uh, reminded of that story with Facebook, and some reporting came out this week that I think is so interesting. Did y'all read about the moment that Zuckerberg decided to change the name? It actually happened when Oculus released the Quest 2. And there was an uprising of people saying, no, 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 no. I do not want to have a mandatory Facebook account in order to use this gadget. I don't trust Facebook. It's completely corrupted. Don't get us in the same boat. And uh, according to reports, that's the moment that Zuckerberg was like, okay, we need to rebrand the entire company. So uh, is it a predictable move? Yes, uh, but I also think it really signals an uh, abrogation of any responsibility to fix the very serious problems at that company. Yes, I mean, there are a couple of different ways uh, to, to, to look at this. You know, first is standard corporate growth at some point means that you're going to rename your company. It happened to Google just because you need to have something that encompasses all the different subsidiaries that you're going to buy or develop. That's that's I understand that. That's fine. That's going to go. Every business is going to have that growing pain. There is another element here, which is Facebook and Zuckerberg have realized that Facebook has become toxic. The actual name is a negative connotation. That's amazing uh, to me. That's amazing for a company that's that's this big. I mean, it's it's something like Comcast or Cox. Uh, you know, these companies that are huge that everybody uses and yet everybody hates. That's what Facebook has become. And I don't see that changing with the name. I mean, yeah, it worked for ValueJet because there are so many small carriers that can essentially do the same thing. You've commoditized that service. But with Facebook, there are so few large social media companies, and there are none like Facebook. Everyone knows what they're using. It doesn't matter if you're calling it Metastasize or Meta or Muse or whatever it is. It's still Facebook. Well, yeah, I mean, this is it. And I I thought it was very interesting from from a... the standpoint of they're now grouping Facebook and Instagram, just they're just apps and everything else is meta. Uh, and I wondered whether that was possibly so, you know, when if the regulators do start coming in, um, then they can say, right, okay, well, we'll, we'll just sort Facebook out, but we're, we're, you know, we're all meta now. So, you know, that's it's, it's really different. Um, but I mean, as you say, Google has done this with Alphabet. 
I mean, back in the UK, we had uh, the wind-scale nuclear reactor, which uh, caught fire and spread fallout all over East all over Europe, and they changed the name to Windscale. Sorry, to Sellafield. Um, so, I mean, name changes are commonplace; they do work. But will it get Facebook out of this hole? I, I don't believe it will. Uh, you know, they they made a there was a document that came out this week, basically talking about Facebook's crisis with trying to hire engineers. Uh, you know, in 2020, they put out a huge um, a huge call for new talent, uh, and by this year, it had fallen flat. Uh, right now, in the United States, uh, there's a real the Facebook name is so toxic; they're not able to even recruit talent to the company to fix their existing problems. And that's why I thought it was so notable that, you know, no disrespect to European engineers, y'all are great, but they're actually having to go to other countries to recruit talent uh, to to build what they believe is going to be the metaverse. They put out a call to hire, I believe it was, was it 10,000 or 20,000 engineers? It was one of those numbers. But, you know, just imagine how much work they could do repairing their product here if they invested that kind of infrastructure in Um, It's clear that this is just a a distraction for Zuckerberg in his view, and he's not serious about fixing it. So he's moving on to the next thing. So I think it it really signals that Facebook is not serious about addressing their uh, toxic problems and their toxic perception in the public. And I think we should uh, expect them to continue in this way. Could could we take one step back Uh, just to play devil's advocate here? Um, <laughs> it's popular to hate on Facebook because Facebook has done so many things that we, the the technorati, the digerati, have cataloged over the years. But to the common person, to an average person who just uses Facebook because it's where they find their friends and their family, has Facebook really done that much wrong? I, I hear it all the time when I'm trying to explain how big data can be so dangerous in the hands of unscrupulous operators that they don't care if so-and-so has their data or they don't care if so-and-so is analyzing their, their internet usage patterns. For us, the, the branding change is ridiculous because it doesn't change the underlying company. And, and like Brianna says, it doesn't change the underlying toxicity. But to mom and pop, Joe and, and, uh, and Jan Smith, who are using Facebook to see photos of their grandkids, um, is there really a problem that Facebook has to has to fix? Well, if you live in Myanmar, if you live in Myanmar, and you know you're part of the genocide that went on there, which Facebook has admitted that it, it helped foster, yep. um, I think yes, you might have something to say about it. But I I get what you're saying. I mean, my mum uses Facebook, and even after the name change, she's still going to carry on calling it Facebook, and she's really not that bothered about what they've done. Um, but I mean, whether or not this is is something which we should just accept, or I mean, we're technologists; we're supposed to be pushing, you know, yes. pushing against this sort of thing or pushing for it if it's good. And Facebook ain't good at the moment. You know, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of like cybersecurity. You know, there's never going to be a market-based solution to fix cybersecurity because neither the buyer or the seller uh, are incentivized to uh, to pay for it, right? Um, it's only going to be fixed with regulation. And I think expecting the general public to have a, you know, forgive the phrase, Robert, but come to Jesus moment <laughs> about uh, yeah. these issues, I just... I. I 
I don't think it's ever going to happen. And I don't think it's their role. You know, we don't expect automobiles to get uh, better gas mileage because consumers are out there uh, demanding it unless we're in a, a different country. It might have higher uh, petrol pl- prices than the United States. Uh, you know, this is a it's a job for regulators. Ultimately, and I think it's uh, it's very dark and disturbing to see Congress has basically abrogated their responsibility to do uh, even bigger oversight here. At the end of the day, Zuckerberg, he's one of us. He's a technologist. And uh, he's made a decision to see no evil, hear no evil. He's clearly going to continue on this path. He doesn't think it's a problem. So uh, I I just, I think he's he's beyond help. (laughs) It's fairly dark. I mean, it's um, yeah. he does he does seem to have a certain amount of um, willingness to ignore this. I would have thought. Um, I mean, what's the view in Europe, Padre? Is this playing is this playing well over there, or are, are people just like, oh, it's Zuck again? I I think there actually is a bit more visibility into what's happening with Facebook and what's happening with big data in Europe, at least in the circles in which in which I uh, I, I reside. The, the strange thing is, though, even though people have a better understanding of the issues of privacy and how Facebook has been violating that trust, they keep using Facebook products. So the same people that I talk to, and they're completely with me when, they underst- when I try to explain what happened with Cambridge Analytica and what happens when big data is used to do crowd analysis, um, why that's bad. And they understand that and they get it. And they send that information to their friend over WhatsApp. Uh, so there's a better understanding, but I think we're still at that point where it's too convenient. And no matter what, even though Facebook seems to be the harbinger of doom for freedom in the Western world, it's just too good for them to pass up. Uh, and that actually really scares me. Myself, all I mean, I'm, I disagree wildly with what Facebook's been doing, but I still use it because it's the only way. Well, it's the easiest way to keep in contact with friends and family back uh, back in the UK. But yes, I mean, for all the bad press they've received, and, and you know, it really hasn't hurt the user stats that much. Although looking through their financial figures this week, I have noticed there's a drop off in European use and average revenue per user, which could be getting people slightly worried. But in terms of the people that could actually change so this, regulators and, and governments, <clears throat> the U.S. government seems to have basically said, you know, they levied a $5 billion fine, which, what, three months profits for Facebook? I think yeah, they can live nothing. with that. Yeah. You know, um, probably find it down the back of the sofa, to be honest. But, I mean, regulators seem to have completely abrogated their responsibility. And, I, I mean, Brianna, you're very up on the political scene. Is there any sign of this changing under the Biden administration? I, I unfortunately I don't think so. Uh, you know we have seen uh, you know we have seen better digital policy and better uh, you know better policy coming out of the FCC overall. Uh, thank God it could hardly be worse. But I don't get the sense that uh, it's really a priority. I I do want to say though it occurs to me that there is another group of people with the power to influence Facebook. Um, For me, I run a political pack and I write giant checks to Facebook constantly because they're such an effective uh, vector for getting political advertising out. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I, I wonder if there's space for 
advertisers to kind of come together and demand more from Facebook, right? Like, uh, first of all, they charge us entirely too much. They're not transparent on the metrics. They've shown time and time again that, uh, you know, in the case of uh, video advertising, they actually can not be honest about the metrics at times. So I wonder if there's space for uh, for people that write Facebook's checks to come forward and say, we demand more, you know, we demand better products, uh, forming a kind of alliance. Well, the Facebook is I famously like that. The, Facebook is famously the company that that said that if a video opens and is played for three seconds, then that counts as a view. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's completely bizarre. Padre, sorry, you were... Um, well, okay, so I, I deal in this space because one of my responsibilities is the new media outreach. That's that's Twitter, that's Facebook, that's Instagram. Um, and the, first, they rejected my appeal to just not do anything with Facebook. They said, no, we have to be in Facebook. It's it's where we get the most views. It's where we get the most traffic. It's where we get heat. So I get that. It's It's a necessary evil. But trying to get them to not pay Facebook money to push their posts is it's an uphill battle. I just I can't do it anymore because Facebook gives them that little dopamine. Even for them, it's a dopamine hit when they see what kind of reach a video gets or what kind of reach a post gets. And even when I try to explain exactly what that data means and it's not actually what they think it is, it doesn't matter because it's it's someplace where they can put their money and they see a result. It may just be a result in charts, but it's still a result. I don't see that mindset changing. And again, these are enlightened people. These are people who understand the issues with Facebook, and yet they're still not able to wean themselves. So I would love the idea of getting advertisers together and using their collective power to say, look, we, we, want, we want to advertise with you, but we need these changes. I just don't see it happening until there's one big player that stands up and says, OK, I'm going to put my flag in the ground. I'm going to start it. Come with me. Yeah, well. I mean, this is it. They've got such a diverse advertiser base, though, that is there, um, there aren't really, there isn't really a couple of big players who could say, change this or we're going to pull our revenue because they need to pull it in from other areas, surely. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's the problem. You know, for me with political advertising, I forget what the number is, but, uh, you know, something like almost 70% of voters uh, for my party are on Facebook. Like that is the uh, easiest way to to reach them with very targeted ads. Um, so I think you're correct. It's an uphill battle. I just, um, I there's a real need for leadership, I think, uh, from all areas. I mean, you know, regulators, I think we need to have users demanding more. I, we're really backed into a corner because uh, e- even basic tools like corporate oversight, I think a lot of different boards would have um, kind of insisted on a different change of direction a long time ago. Zuckerberg controls 51% of shares. So, like, this is a guy, he's even beyond the reach of co- corporate oversight from his board. So it's it's I I I don't know. I mean, do you think? I almost wonder if like he needs help from the Almighty, right? Like <laughs> we may we maybe maybe you can help us out. But uh, I, I feel like we have very few options. Yes, I mean it, it is ubiquitous and it, it does seem to be out there pretty much nonstop. And there's not a lot that you can do about it. Even people who hate it carry on using it. Yeah. Um, and then when you throw in Instagram into the into the equation and WhatsApp. Um, it's an enormous reach. I mean, is it possible to break it up? Is it even advisable to break it up into separate units? Mm-hmm. 
I feel yes. very strongly it is. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's this is not an operating system. This is not okay. We're gonna we're gonna cripple functionality. These are actual independent services that, in no way, shape, or form, need to actually exist within the same company. WhatsApp worked just fine apart from Facebook, apart from Instagram, and the other Facebook properties. The only thing that binds them together is that desire for the central company for Meta to have all that data in one archive in one place that they can do analysis on so uh, yes it is possible to break them up and actually i think it would be better to break them up i I think services would start working better if there wasn't always that facebook tie-in i I know for a fact that once the oculus started requiring a facebook login i gave up i just no Mm -hmm. i i I don't need another piece of equipment that's going to require me to use an account that i only have because it is tied to other services. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the things from the from the Meta announcement was that they're getting rid of the Facebook login for an awful lot of apps and allow all be Meta. And I'm sure they'll treat that oh, login that information very carefully. Exactly. Same problem again. You know, it's just like, oh wait, we're changing the you know, we're changing the way that you log in. Great. Mm-hmm. You still we've still got to give you the data. Look, the handcuffs are now going to be red, so it's okay, right? Because I know you didn't like the black handcuffs, so now that they're red, we're all good. 100%. Can we, I know we're focused a lot on, like, the Facebook component of it and the the ethical considerations there. I'd love to talk about the meta announcement itself, because as a game developer, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this specific vision coming from Zuckerberg and Facebook about about why I think it's specifically flawed. Um, So, you know, one of the, I think an assumption, well, first of all, let me just tell everyone out there in Twitland, I've spent a lot of time developing prototypes in VR to kind of figure out what kind of game designs uh, work in VR, what kind of ideas work in VR, what kind of stories can you tell in VR? Um, because it's a it's a very different environment. Uh, although the, there's a special set of rules that you have to start thinking about, like optimize, optimizing draw calls towards the center of the screen, uh, and the way you tell stories, the way you move around. So I've, I've thought a lot about this. And I think that there's an underlying assumption with many VR and like metaverse enthusiasts uh, to think that, VR is like the ultimate level of immersion, right? Like you read Snow Crash or you read Ready Player One and you imagine this world where you're out there fighting with swords or, you know, looking for an Easter egg and a recreation of all these different things. And that's the core assumption, right? That this is somehow more immersive than what we have today. And what I can't personally square that with is if that's true, then why haven't we seen the early adopters flock to using this more than we do uh, you know, traditional screens, traditional games? Because it's very clear. You know, this isn't just an opinion. The, the metrics will show this out, that you can have the very, very best games in the entire world and the best experiences in the entire world, but it's not a place that people want to spend a lot of time in. They'll, they'll be there for like 30-minute bursts, and then they'll get away and they'll want to go back to the real world. I, I actually don't believe that VR is inherently 
a more immersive experience than looking at a screen. And if you think about that from like a game development point of view, it makes sense because most VR experiences, they require you to be in this first person view and it marries you to a certain set of mechanics, uh, working with your hands, shooting things with your hands, kind of representing your, your real body in the world. We all know if we're sitting back with a controller and playing a video game, you kind of get lost whether you're doing combos or, you know, playing a, a third uh, person story like Mass Effect. It, it has exactly that quality of immersion. So a conclusion I've come to is that VR inherently, it, it, it gives you, it, it almost limits the amount of tools that designers have to give you the immersion. The second part of this that I'm really not sold on with the metaverse vision is the fundamental reason that I think social media is so addicting in the first place, that it gives us all the illusion of feeling connected to real people. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm in friends with many of the people I talk to frequently on Twitter, right? Uh, these are people that represent themselves with a real icon of themselves. They promote their real life work. You know, sometimes it leads to real opportunities like uh, doing uh, Twit together today. That is a real connection. The Zuckerberg vision of this seems to be cartoons and this like um this inauthentic representation of yourself that's once removed from that authentic connection so i think you come to this same question like is it more immersive are you going to feel like you're forming a more human relationship with a person if you're talking to them through an cartoon avatar of them i i don't really think that's true I, I think that it's just simply a different way to do that. So, you know, with those two issues side by side, I, I'm just not sold that a metaverse is going to do anything better than what our current social media and games and uh, tools that we have today are going to do. Well, this is it. I mean, virtual worlds are all well and good, but they've got to be a believable and be immersive and be something have something that which you know no one else can offer. It's, um, I mean, Padre, you're going to be putting a, a virtual Vatican out there and which people can wander around and gaze in awe at the art art of centuries. There have been requests, and there actually have been some technical studies, and uh, I've basically told them we can do it. Uh, I don't know why you want to do it. I, I, to get into the discussion, I think. Uh, something that Brianna brought up is why hasn't VR caught on? And I think it's because VR comes out of a fundamental misunderstanding of how we absorb information. Um, right now, I'm sitting in front of my setup, and it's a pretty typical setup. It's It's got three monitors. I'm, I'm monitoring a couple of different things at the same time. I have a sense of where I am. And when I'm working, I can easily move from one piece to the next. I, I, I can absorb things through my peripheral vision and I can take breaks so I can look away from my screens when I need to sort of concentrate on something. VR doesn't let you do that. VR is always there. Uh, that's, that's the whole idea. It's always connected, but that's not the way humans work. We like to be connected. We don't like to be constantly connected. Uh, as far as forming relationships, I think one of the, the issues that we've seen, because we study this, my organization studies this greatly, you know, there's a lot of surface 
connectivity where people think they're forming a relationships because they have communicated with each other. They've sent messages. They've sent tweets. They've sent posts. They've maybe exchanged a couple of photos. Uh, but that is fundamentally not how you build a relationship. A relationship actually requires real risk. So VR, especially the way that it's being envisioned by Facebook, might be fantastic at selling you a product. It is still horrible, absolutely horrible at working or building relationships. You see, would, would augmented reality deal with the problems of that? I mean, for for both of you, I mean... in the idea behind augmented is that you know you can and this is something which came up in in uh, the metro announcement it was just like okay so you can have vr when you want to be fully immersed ar when you're out in the physical world as they put it or reality as the rest of us do um and would would ar help with that or, or and, and certainly based on from what we've seen so far ar hardware is still very very prototype phases i mean they they announced project nazaire the ar glasses <clears throat> As part of as part of the announcement, but I have yet to see a pair of AR glasses which you'd actually could use or could wear in any conceivable format. Yeah, yes, I, but the idea much, of yeah, AR. Go ahead. I, I'm sorry. Just the idea of AR is so much better. The idea of being able to be out in the world and receiving information about the things and what you're seeing or the things that you're interacting with that is so attractive to me that I can actually see real world applications. What am I putting on a VR headset? You are closing yourself out from the outside world. Uh, so for me, AR from the start has always been far more promising. Yes, much more difficult because the technological hurdles that you have to leap are much higher. You have to make a system that is usable outside. It has to be light. It has to be stylish. It has to have a long battery. It can't be connected to a huge computer on, on your waist. Now, those those things are just technical problems, but. If you if you put those aside for a second and just admit that at some point we will meet those technical problems, the promise of AR far far exceeds VR. And is that true in the gaming world, Brianna? Well, I think it's a different set of assumptions, right? I, I definitely agree. the The promise is there. Uh, I think if you're thinking about game design, there's I think there's less of a difference between like the way you would design an AR. Uh, game and a VR game, they're kind of the same set of assumptions, right? Your physical body in the space. Um, what is exciting to me about AR is it's essentially, it's the same uh, idea of social media, right? You're given 2D information, maybe it can be slightly more 3D, but essentially you're, 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 you're giving a more convenient way for us to always be addicted and streaming uh, this information like straight into your uh, brain receptors. I think our social media addiction shows that like there's a real tendency in human nature to want to uh, receive information constantly. Um, I think many of us as techies, it's, it's almost addictive, right? So I do agree with you that that's going to be more addictive, but that is not a space where Facebook is going to be able to create a um, like a universal experience or a monopoly in the same way. Because you could have any application kind of there in the bottom of AR uh, playing in the corner of your glasses and many, many years down the road, um, you know, with like neural link implants where it's going straight into your brainstem. Uh, you know, John Carmack had some fascinating comments on this to come out of uh, uh, 
uh, come out of Facebook the other day because he, even though he works for Facebook, made some very public comments saying he thinks that uh, they're completely going about this the wrong way. And just in case you don't know John Carmack, uh, he's the guy, uh, one of the pair along with John Romero that uh, launched it and, and did Doom in the 90s. So his thought with this is you can't go out tomorrow and say, I'm going to create a metaverse. You can't say, I'm going to hire 10,000 engineers and we're going to build this thing. And he likened it to the experience of building Doom. If you remember that in 1995, I believe it was, you know, they built this kind of 3D engine that had a game with it. And then along the way of building this game, there just happened to be all this other stuff that they coincidentally could do along with it. They developed Doom the game, which has a purpose. And then along the way, they came up with WAD files, you know, these uh, huge files that let uh, uh, modders come in and create mm-hmm. different versions of it. Uh, they came up with, uh, you know, multiplayer uh, over TCIP. Um, they came out with all these innovations that really changed the industry. So what he is advocating for them to do, if they really want to develop a metaverse, rather than trying to build that as the big goal, he thinks they need to bite off a small part of the problem and dedicate Facebook's huge resources towards uh, developing that. So as a specific example, developing, uh, um, you know, like, uh, what's their conference? F8, I believe it is. Having that entirely in the metaverse next year. Because if they commit to that, they're going to have to figure out how to uh, widely deploy this to a lot of different people at Facebook. They have a lot of different usage requirements. They're going to have to figure out spatial audio. They're going to have to figure out the uh, infrastructure and bandwidth for a lot of people to log in for the same time. And by focusing on goal, they'll get all these other technologies out of it. So to me, I think that says two things. First, obviously, that's a smarter way for Facebook to go about that. But secondly, I don't really believe there's going to be a future where Facebook is the only company that develops a a problem, uh, develops a solution to a problem in this space. I think it's going to be much more akin to what we see today, where many, many startups are working in this space. Uh, You have different uh, specialists uh, that work on different parts of it, and ultimately four or five companies getting a lot of market share. Well, we're going to have to see how it develops. But uh, in the meantime, let's just have a quick word from Leo, who uh, <laughs> might not be here in, in person, but he is in, his, in spirit. Uh, hey, Ian, thank you so much for filling in for me while I'm down in Mexico. But I do have to interrupt. Just going to be a minute. Got to tell you about Audible. I love Audible. Audible audiobooks are the best. It's not just audiobooks. It's spoken word entertainment of all Kinds. What am I listening to today? Well, there is a great Dune audiobook. It's a dra- one of Audible's specialties. They do dramatizations, multiple voices, acting it out. I saw the movie, then I got a hankering for more Dune. It's on Audible. Love it. Actually, uh, I bought it many years ago. And that's one of the things I love about Audible. All my audiobooks, and I have a library of over 500 of them, I can continue to listen to at any time in the Audible app. That's pretty awesome. 
What else am I listening to? Well, I'm getting ready for The Wheel of Time, which is Amazon Prime's next big fantasy TV show. It comes out next month. 15 volumes. Uh, I just downloaded volume six <laughs> of, of The Wheel of Time saga. I am loving it. It's one of those titles that you're glad there's so many of uh, of them because you're just going to get immersed in a world that just, you just suddenly, you know these people, you know this world, you're really there. In fact, that's how I really got started with Audible. I had a long commute uh, all the way down to San Francisco for Tech TV. Sometimes I'd be four hours a day in the car and I was getting pretty squirrely until I found audiobooks from audible.com and that saved my life. In fact, my first big series was 21 audiobooks the very famous, and I highly recommend them, Aubrey Maturin series about, uh, I've mentioned it before, about uh, Napoleonic War era British sea captain and his good friend, the doctor, as they sail around the world with all sorts of adventures. There's Yeah, there's 21 of them. Patrick O'Brien, the author, fantastic. The nice thing about Audible is, you know, when you're in the car on a commute, when you're doing the dishes, walking the dog, but you want to enjoy something, you want to listen. And these audio books or spoken word titles are so engaging. I just, I mean, I like Lisa and I are listening together to uh, James Michener's Hawaii. Uh, instead of watching TV at night, we put on an audio book from Audible. It's so great, and it's a nice thing to do together. It's really wonderful. Whether you're driving, cooking, cleaning your house, or just relaxing, you can listen to amazing audio from Audible. It's the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. The largest selection of audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and more. You can get original entertainment from top celebrity creators. Listen to Steve Martin's Born Standing Up. He reads it. It's in his voice. It's great. Thousands of popular and binge-worthy podcasts, too. In fact, they have a new plan, Audible Plus. It gives you full access to the whole Audible Plus catalog. So it's all about giving members a chance to listen to and discover new favorites, explore different formats like the exclusive Words Plus Music series. There are podcasts ad-free in there, even theatrical performances. You can learn a language. You can you can learn anything. You can enjoy a great performance and listen to great audiobooks. All available to download or stream so you can listen anywhere, anytime, on any device. You'll never lose your spot. To use your Audible membership, though, you do need to download the Audible app. It's free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. Listening to Audible, it makes you feel inspired, connected, and it's available all in one app. Audible plus your playlist for life. I hope I've convinced you. I am a massive Audible fan. I think I think you know that if you've been listening to our shows. And we're thrilled that you can dive in now. With Audible Plus, new members can try Audible Plus for 30 days. Download the Audible app. Get started with that free trial. Go to audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash twit or text twit to 500-500. Please do that, by the way, so they know that you saw it here. We're, we're big fans and we really want them to know how much we love Audible and we want to drive a lot of traffic. So please use that address, audible.com slash twit. Or if you want to install the app, just text twit, T-W-I-T, to, to their short code, which is 500-500. They'll send you a link. You can download the app. Audible. Audible.com slash twit.
We love Audible. I know you will, too. Text TWIT to 500-500 to start your free trial today. Now back to Ian and the gang. Thanks very much, Leo. Okay. Um, now, obviously, you don't want the show to be all Facebook, but we really should mention the Facebook papers since uh, Francis Hagen, the whistleblower, has been speaking to the UK Parliament about it. And we've had a bunch of revelations. There have been problems with India trying to deal with content. There have been allegations that Facebook knew that it was putting out anti-vax information. But at the end of the day, didn't we really already know this? I mean, a lot of the allegations, yes, it's nice to have, you know, Facebook's own documents confirming them, but this was stuff that was covered years ago. Are we really surprised by this? Surprised? No. Uh, the fact that there are mainstream media outlets that are now catching up, that, that actually is a little surprising because there was some discussion about whether or not they would ever be able to connect the dots and say, hey, wait a minute, this happened and that happened. Now, we've known for a long time that Facebook has been doing this. We've known for a long time how Facebook can sway public opinion uh, with the types of advertisers that they accept. But as I mentioned earlier in the show, the, the, the common person, the regular person who really doesn't cover technology every single day and actually doesn't really care about it as long as it works to connect them to what they want, um, they don't seem to care. Um, I, I've, I've seen people read these stories and say, oh, that's pretty bad. And then they go back to Facebook and then they go back to WhatsApp and then they go back to Instagram. So am I surprised? No, not really. Am I surprised by how little this is going to change things? A little bit. Uh, I was I was hoping that maybe this was the time. Maybe the outrage was finally big enough. Maybe the pain would finally be high enough that Facebook would be forced to change. That's It's not going to happen. I, I don't know. I think I'm a little less pessimistic than you are, uh, Robert. I feel like, you know, it's like that moment in the murder movie where you kind of know that the guy did it, but they can't quite prove it in court because they don't have enough evidence. And then, you know, they, they go and they get uh, something comes through, someone agrees to testify. And that's the moment they have something they could use in court to put somebody away. You know, if you're talking about regulators and the, the pretext that they're going to need to take stricter action, I, mean, I think it's very much worth noting that Europe has traditionally been much harder on American tech companies than the American Congress mm-hmm. has been. Um, I, I feel like, you know, this isn't a, a single report to come out or a, a single person to say this or a single story and, you know, the verge or whatever. This is a pattern of behavior backed up by thousands of documents that proves that they're doing it again and again and doing it willfully. And we're going to literally spend years like tearing apart all the information that we have in here. So I I feel like this is the evidence that lets us know, you know, this is what reporting has been hinting at, and it's all corroborated at this point. Like, here it is. Regulators go to work. If you need an excuse, you've got one. There is that. But, I mean, I'm just thinking back to the Snowden papers. I mean, when those came out, when the Snowden archive came out, I mean, it was literally 18 months before I'd been at Black Hat, and had suggested to a former deputy director of the FBI that the U.S. had used um, the Echelon network to spy on commercial companies for, you know, the benefit of, of U.S. companies. And he tried to have me thrown out the conference because, ah, Dave, it's conspiracy theory rubbish. And then when the Snowden leaks came out, it's kind of like, wow, we've actually got the data now. Yeah. We've, we've Everything we suspected they were doing, they were doing. But then after that, 
what did politicians do? They just changed the laws to make it legal. I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not massively hopeful about about Facebook changing. Right. You know, these these leaks actually changing things. Is that a little bit too maybe doom laden? Do you think? <laughs> Padre, give us some joy. I don't think I, – I don't know. I got no joy here. I, it's not doom-laden. I think it's just – it's very realistic. I, I remember one of the very first episodes of Tech News Today that it was ever on was when we were covering how Zuckerberg was going to have 51 percent of the voting shares of Facebook. Uh, and the comment at the time that I made was, this is great as long as you believe in Zuckerberg's vision because there's nothing to stop him with 51 percent. It doesn't matter what the rest of the board wants. It doesn't matter what the rest of the shock, uh, shareholders want. He's got the majority. He's going to do it the way that he wants to do it. Now, that worked really well when people were totally on board with him building up this giant network uh, and making record profits. But now that we don't like what he's doing, that 51% is still there. He still doesn't have to worry about getting voted off the board. There is no one who can kick him out of the company. There is no repercussion that, unless you were to bankrupt Facebook, would actually affect his net worth. So that's where my pessimism comes into play, which is, yes, we've got the data. Yes, we can now prove that Facebook was doing horrible, horrible things. But none of it was illegal. Uh, Lawmakers have no idea what they're talking about when they're talking about regulating big tech. And... There's no one who can stop Facebook internally. So where do we go? I mean, this just seems to be the thing from some of the leaks in that, you know, engineers were saying, this is clearly what's happening. We are dropping the ball on this. We are promoting divisive content. And yes, it drives engagements, but we we need to think about the longer term and and sort of the, the image part of this. And yeah, when you've got someone who is in complete control of the company there's no real incentive to to go up against them because you're going to lose internally at least i mean brianna you were saying a lot of facebook facebook is having real problems hiring at the moment do you think that might be a break on things I, I do. Um, you know, uh, it's become very popular on Twitter for, uh, you know, software engineers to, to tweet their, uh, they're basically, uh, uh, no, I will not work at Facebook, uh, letters from recruiters when they come forward and try to, um, to get them to work there. You know, I, I know this is a strong analogy, so stay with me, but, you know, there are tech companies that facilitated some truly horrific historic events, right? And I think that it should give all of us that make these things pause to say, what am I getting involved with? Am I building something that's fundamentally evil? There are real, serious, credible questions from reasonable people if Facebook is fundamentally incompatible with democracy. Because since this explosion of Facebook all around the world, we have seen a movement towards authoritarianism that is terrifying. And my hope is that if the people that are skilled at this, the people that they need to build these products refuse to work there, you know, hopefully another competitor could come along that does actually have ethics, uh, you know, and, and will be held to some kind of standards with the public. So um, I think that's a very positive development. You know, I would encourage any software out there engineers to, you know, follow your peers and stay the course on that. 
It's quite interesting. We saw a similar sort of thing when um, Uber was being exposed for the rather toxic atmosphere that it had in, had in its own company. And I was speaking to a recruitment consultant, but and they were saying people are now taking Uber off their resumes uh, and just putting themselves down as a freelancer or something because they don't want to be associated with the company. And I, I wonder if that's going to be happening with Facebook too. But there will always be flax, or, flax around to defend it. Um, a friend of mine did a story about IBM's involvement in the Holocaust uh, in building you know, the tabulation mm-hmm. machines which enabled the Nazis to you know, put people down in, in certain things. I'm not saying Facebook are, are Nazis or anything. But it was interesting. We got an, uh, that she got an email from I, IBM's chief PR person saying, read the article, a couple of things. First off, we pulled out of, of Germany in 1938. And I don't think anyone really realised how bad Hitler was before 1938 which led to some hollow laughter, and then follow, follow that up with, by the way, you say our, our, our actions were deplorable. We prefer regrettable. Would you mind changing it? It's just, there are always going to be people out there who are trying to, you know, spin this right. I, I don't know if Facebook can spin themselves out of this, but experience suggests that they may be able to. Um, we shall see. But, um, yes, I mean, overall, uh, let's try and make the show not all about Facebook. Um <laughs> Uh, I would just like to bring in, bring in Brianna at this point because I understand you've got the new MacBook Pro. Tell us what's I it do. like. I do. It's right here. I have it right here. Uh-huh. Uh, I told... Right. Uh, at I last, we've was... finally got a decent hardware refresh, as I, as I, I understand. Know. It's so funny. It is like, uh, it's like holding my old 2012 MacBook Pro. It's just <laughs> everything, everything they've made bad decisions about in the, uh, in that last few years. Uh, they kind of rolled it back. Um, yeah, I've only had it, uh, since this afternoon. So I can't give you a, uh, a full in-depth review of it, but I can give you, uh, some very quick impressions. Uh, first of all, the keyboard in it is excellent. Uh, you know, I, uh, work on political initiatives. Most of my day is spent sending messages uh, one way or another. So the the keyboard isn't just drastically better than this scissor uh, keyboard uh, that they used for many years. It's better than the keyboard uh, in the M1 Mac they introduced last year. I have the 2020 model of that. Hmm. So if you write a lot, I think that this is, uh, and you have the money, I think it's an upgrade that uh, you could very seriously uh, consider. Um it's much heavier in hand. Uh, it's it's squared on the edges. It just it feels really chunky and substantial, uh, which I think is a good thing. But I also think because it's so much heavier, that's why I personally decided to get the 14-inch instead of the 16-inch. So, you know, you're going to be having a heavier, uh, sturdier laptop. Uh, the notch... I was concerned about that. I haven't even noticed it since day one. Interesting. Uh, so I, I think that's going to be a non-factor for me. Uh, the other thing is there was a real kerfluffle this week with Dropbox, who uh, had kind of uh, thrown it out to the community. Hey, guys, do you think we should uh, develop a uh, Silicon app, an Apple Silicon app for Dropbox? Uh, Dropbox currently on my Mac uses over a gig of my RAM, wow. which is massive. <laughs> that makes Chrome look positively efficient. It's terrible. What? It's unjustifiable. It, all, all the gig. time? Just w- yes. In the background? Sinking. That's in background. Bonkers. In residence, it's <laughs> chewing a gig of RAM, according to iStat. So uh, Dropbox quickly walked that back uh, from their forum post saying, no, 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 guys, don't worry. We'll be releasing this 
next year in 2022. But I just feel it's like, you know, Apple Silicon's been out for a while, guys. Yeah, this is a something I spend $20 a month on. Might want to make this a priority. Uh, but think. overall, yeah, yeah. I think overall, uh, you know, ultimately I can't do my job without a MacBook. And I think this is an excellent version of it. Excellent. I mean, Padre, I, I, I must admit, it's been a while since you were over here. Are you a Mac or a PC person at the moment? Or a Chromebook person? I, uh, I am a PC person, 100% a PC person. Um, <laughs> but I, I, do like, I do like the Apple hardware. I do find it funny that basically Apple just new coked the world. They uh, released a, a series of, of MacBooks that were wanting that people really didn't like. And then they released the old MacBook and suddenly everyone loves it again. So... Hey, kudos. Well done. Well done. Well, I mean, they have they have really been letting the MacBook down over the last few years. I mean, okay, there's the keyboard problems, which um, are many and numerous. But, I mean, yeah. it, it just – it wasn't a priority for them, it seems. They were – you know, it's all about iOS and it's all about, you know, the latest generation of devices. But I have yet to meet a MacBook user, who, someone who's used MacBook for a few years, who isn't – passionate about it and doesn't want to change and apple were giving people reasons to change i mean brianna do you think this is obviously you've only had it for a couple of hours but i mean mm-hmm. and you're mac based but i mean generally you're feeling positive this is something which could woo people back to the fold i am but i mean let's let's really dive into something you just said about the ways that they've been laying the community down um you have the lack of ports that's been addressed um you have um, you know, you have the keyboard that's been addressed. Um, you have better thermals that's been addressed. Uh, it's higher up on the table, but there's something that they, they have and they haven't addressed. And I think this really gets to the core of your question. For a long time, we've been talking about the lack of discrete GPUs in the MacBook lines. Uh, I'm a professional 3D person and a game developer. Uh, you know, I need very powerful 3D capabilities to run Unreal Engine and Autodesk Maya on my Mac. Um, Apple at this point have functionally seeded the ground on games and professional 3D work. I'm sorry, it's just a fact. Uh, You you can play Apple arcade games. They are not sophisticated enough to need a (laughs) 16-core, you know, uh, Mac Max uh, GPU with Apple Silicon inside of it. So I think this is the return to form that we were looking for. If you use Final Cut, or you know those kinds of uh, that family of apps that have been really optimized for it. At the same time, Apple has given up, in my opinion, on gaming and really sophisticated graphics technology to the point where you know Robert, like you, when I do Unreal work or serious graphics work th- these days, I don't even try to do it on a Mac anymore. I have a very expensive PC and a PC laptop that I use for that. So um, I think it's very good, but just know that you're not going to be a gamer on it. It's interesting that they that you say that because I mean, back in the day, in the sort of the eighties and nineties. Gaming was key to, to to Apple's popularity. They did much better yeah. games than you could get on the PC. I mean, what what is it? I mean, that kind of dropped off once Doom came out, and everyone realised, wow, this is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> you mentioned Doom earlier, and I just I lost so much time to that game. I'm just it, you you put on a pair of headphones and you were there. So why did Apple drop the ball on this? 
I think it was, it was two things. Yeah. yeah, games changed. They found themselves accidentally in uh, charge of the biggest games market in the entire world, right? There's a tendency with Apple devices, and I know this firsthand, to force them to run on a very wide range of, of, of hardware. So, you know, whereas the, the PlayStation or PC can kind of aim for a higher end of, uh, of graphical experiences, Apple arcade games really default down to this cartoony uh, style where you could probably run them on like uh, the iPad 3, most of these games with very little problems. So I just think that uh, it's not just that the, the the kind of ecosystem of successful games on iOS and Mac uh, don't really require powerful graphics. Apple themselves have not really spent a lot of money uh, developing these graphical APIs and tools. Uh, remember how long SceneKit and SpriteKit were really uh, the only tools an iOS developer had for these things, forcing you to go to something like Unity or Unreal Engine. So um, the bottom line is it's just not been a priority for Apple and the technologies that they've developed and the relationships they've made with game developers. And they have the, uh, they have the outcome of the choices they made. Yes, indeed. I, mean, I remember when they tried to come up with a Doom knockoff. I think it was called Marathon. Uh, it was just painfully bad. You know? Okay, but wait, wait, because the spiritual uh, successor to Marathon was Halo. So yeah. it did eventually become something incredible. Yeah, but on a different platform. I mean, Halo saved the Xbox, yeah. for goodness sake. I mean, there was nothing else that people would play on that. But I mean, look, it, Leisure, Shoot, Leisure Suit Larry and the Land no. of the Lounge Lizards and Monkey Island, those are great on, on an Apple. But once you started getting graphics intensive, it just. Like Brianna said, the game publishers had to focus on where they could optimize, and it wasn't going to be the Apple. It does seem bizarre. They actually they actually chopped that back, but we shall see. Um, actually, now while we're on the topic of games, uh, Brianna, I believe you have um, something really quite uh, marvelous in 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 on route. We have a Gamergate series in the works, as I understand it. That is correct. Uh, you know, this is the first time I've gotten to talk about it in media, so I'm really excited, both of you. Um, so, you know, uh, for those of you that don't know, I was one of the primary targets of Gamergate back in 2014 and 2015, which was a, a kind of concerted effort by trolls to silence women speaking out in the game industry. Um I've been approached many times over the years to uh, basically come forward and turn this into a movie or a TV series or something like that. Um, and I've turned it down every single one of those times, not once, not twice, not three times. Four separate times Hollywood's come to my door, uh, has offered me quite a bit of money, and I've said uh, I can't be involved with that. And the what reason was oh, sorry. they wanted to make it, yeah, they wanted to make it like a feminist horror movie. Like one of the most iconic uh, moments of Gamergate that they actually uh, put in the Law and Order episode was the man in the skull mask, like sending videos to me about how he was going to murder me, my husband, and my dog. You know, it's kind of just melodrama, right? Uh, just not something I want to revisit. It's not something that I thought would add to the discourse. So. This company came to me, Mind Riot, and uh, they were like, well, how would you do a Gamergate TV series? I mean, I think the reason we're still talking about Gamergate all these years later is because it, our failure to act then has really led to the failure of many of our systems today as we Indeed. see politics kind of breaking down all around us. 
um, because Gamergate wasn't really about death threats. It was a fundamental change in how we argued online and how extremists could kind of hijack a conversation in bad faith and bring some really terrifying policies to bear. I just want to walk you through a short list of things that have happened in the United States since Gamergate. You had 8chan, uh, which was born, and 8chan directly led to the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand, where 49 people were brutally murdered by someone who was radicalized on 8chan, which, again, directly was formed because of Gamergate, uh, where he live-streamed it and became inculcated with these white supremacist ideas. You have one of the primary uh, targets, uh, architects of Gamergate and the harassment campaign, Steve Bannon, who literally helped Donald Trump get elected in 2016 and brought these kinds of troll wars to bear, which have poisoned United States politics and have made it so we really can't tell which end is up when it comes to issues like vaccines. Um, You have the QAnon movement which again is directly linked to many of the people behind Gamergate and 8chan. So this QAnon movement in the United States, this cult, which again has hijacked social media, um, that has directly led to many events in the United States like January 6th. So what I wanted to do was to take Gamergate and to tell a story about how American politics got to where they are today, to talk about this choice we made and that the Obama Justice Department made back in 2014 and draw the line every step of the way uh, with uh, you know using myself as a narrator, but using largely fictitious characters to kind of represent these different points of view. Why did the game industry fail to stand up for women employees? Why did the Justice Department fail to act? Why did companies like Facebook fail to seriously invest in addressing disinformation and harassment? Why was the media so unable to respond to Steve Bannon's particular uh, uh, use of disinformation? How were our ideals in America about free speech twisted and used against us. So that's the story that I'm working with Hollywood to tell, this streamable series talking about how our institutions are failing us and why that's directly why uh, the United States is broken today. That sounds fascinating. Um, are you, have you started recording or is, it, is, is are, you, are you at the scripting stage at the moment? We, we, we've, the way it works is you have a pilot. The pilot is written. We have the arc of the first season. And what we're doing now is basically bidding it out to different uh, major uh, production companies. And I can't tell you which ones are, are working, uh, we're working with uh, yet, but uh, some of the most major uh, uh, studios have written some of the our favorite shows that I Actually, one of them I know for a fact you like a lot because we've talked about it before. Uh, So uh, it's at that point where it's finding the right production uh, uh, studio to basically spend the money to make this happen. Excellent stuff. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that, certainly. Um, Coming up later in the show, we're going to look at uh, Jeff Bezos' business park in space. But in the meantime, here's another word from Leo. Let me interrupt, if you don't mind. Let me interrupt for just a moment. Hi, it's Leo. Thank you, Ian, for filling in for me while I'm gone. You know what I'm bringing to Mexico on my trip with me? Of course, I bring it everywhere with me. Express 
VPN. Did you see this study the FTC just came out with that said Internet service providers are shocking, spying on their customers, gathering information, selling it to marketers, even like personal stuff, location information. You know, you don't really have much choice in ISP. If you're one of, you know, a customer, one of the big ISPs is doing this. There's not much you can do. I don't expect you to switch ISPs, but I think a good solution would be to use ExpressVPN. Prevent your internet service provider from snooping on your internet activity with ExpressVPN. It's so fast. It's so easy. You can even put it on your router and protect your whole household. It's it's a simple app that works on your smartphone and your computer, even smart TVs, even routers, to protect you, encrypt your data so that the ISP can't see it, so that hackers can't hack you. And I love it because it gives you access to content that's restricted geographically. ExpressVPN is the best, absolutely best VPN provider. They have, they're in, I think, 90 plus countries, so you can see content in any of those countries. It's very easy to use one big button on the app. You're connected, uh, and it's so fast, and this is important. You want to go with a VPN provider that frankly, is making enough money so that they don't have to snoop on you like your ISP does, and they can invest in infrastructure so that they're fast. That's ExpressVPN, and it's still a great deal. Less than 7 bucks a month. I'll tell you how we can get that deal. It's the number one VPN service, according to CNET, according to The Verge. It's the only one I use is the one I'm bringing down to Mexico with me to protect me. Doesn't slow down your connection. It doesn't log what you're doing. It can't. Their trusted server technology means they cannot write to the disk. They cannot log what you're doing. And they're regularly audited so that they're pri- so that you know their privacy policy means what it says, that their trusted server works as advertised. It is absolutely the trustworthy VPN. You can't say that about all of them. So stop handing over your personal data, ISPs. And the other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. If you want to protect your privacy, protect your security, and watch some Netflix out of Japan or England, protect yourself with the VPN I use and trust to keep me private online. ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com slash twit. Spell it out. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash twit. You'll get three extra months free when you sign up for a year. This is the one I use, the one I recommend expressvpn.com slash twit. Go there right now to learn more. Now back to you, Ian. Cheers, Leo. Leo is uh, down in Mexico for the Day of the Dead. Uh, and I, th- I suspect possibly recreating the iconic scene from Bond, but still, that's uh, a story for, for, for when he gets back. <laughs> now, further, well, uh, non-Facebook news and other things, uh, we saw that Jeff Bezos has a uh, Blue Origins company and a couple of other partners, including Boeing, are now talking about, by the end of the decade, putting the first commercial space station into orbit, uh, which they described as a mixed-use business park, part hotel, part business centre, part, re- past, uh, part research facility. Um, it's a quite challenging um, a proposition, considering that Blue Origin can't get anything to orbit as yet with their current rocket systems. Um, the passenger systems from Boeing haven't yet worked. In fe- indeed, their passenger capsule is back at the factory because it failed on it, it failed on its last attempt to try and get into orbit. Um, Brianna Padre, do you think this is a, a, a viable idea? Or should it be trying to build business parks in orbit? 
Go on, someone Would I in. like them to? Yes. I, I mean, I, I'd love to see it because uh, hey, that's that's the vision of my of my childhood. Everyone's in a space station. Everyone's orbiting either the Earth or the Moon or in, in a Lagrange point. But as in in terms of does it make financial sense? Not really. Um, I, I, I think we've proven that with the ISS. Yes, there's some interesting experiments, but it's it's far too expensive to escape our gravity well to have anything in a business park just so that it can be in space. It's going to be a prestige thing. It's going to be something that's used by the wealthy so that they can do PR shoots. But uh, other than that, I mean, it's it's not really viable. Uh, the, the level of technology that we have, not just booster tech, not just to get out of the gravity well so that you're actually in orbit and not just falling quickly, it's not there. And more so, it's not going to be there until we stop using chemical propellants and neither Blue Origin nor SpaceX or nor, nor NASA or any of the agencies are anywhere near that level of technology. So interesting idea, sure, for science fiction, uh, not in my lifetime. Interesting. I mean, Brianna, if you got the chance for an orbital holiday, would you take it? And do you think anyone oh, else? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> Come that, was, on. that was quick in a heartbeat. Yes. Yeah. No, Frank and I talk about that all the time. Like this theoretical thing where an alien comes, you get to jump on a spaceship, like in Guardians of the Galaxy. Better <laughs> believe I'm going. Uh, so, I, I, Robert, I do share your pessimistic appraisal of the situation. Uh, I, I do think it's worth noting there are some unique things that can be done in space from a commercial standpoint. You know, my own husband works in uh, biotech. I uh, helped develop the coronavirus vaccine, and there are many kinds of drugs that could best be uh, developed and manufactured in a zero-G environment. Uh, so, and there are all kinds of manufacturing issues like that. So, I do think there's commercial value for that. I I don't mean to get political, though, but this, this news does come out the exact same week that we are talking about a very substantial billionaire's tax here in the United States that would be almost impossible for them to avoid in the way that it's written. And, you know, personally, if I got to choose between uh, Jeff Bezos uh, developing a hotel in space or taxing uh, Jeff Bezos so we could uh, fund NASA much more aggressively and have the public weigh in and do uh, a lot more space exploration and uh, development there, I would choose B all day, every day. So uh, I hope that's the way the uh, the dice rolls there. Well, indeed. Uh, also, can I can I geek out for just a second here? Go for um, it. So when, when you're dealing with space, there's primarily two issues that we have right now. I mean, well, three. The first is the propellant, getting out of the gravity well. But if you're in orbit or even on a lunar body, power and heat – uh, mm-hmm. You build up heat and it's almost impossible to get rid of it. And your power budget is incredibly limited. So uh, I, I'm big on manufacturing in space. I mean, I love the idea that there are certain things that can be made better in a, in a zero-G environment. But having a zero-G environment that provide both the manufacturing capabilities and the power to run the equipment and mm-hmm. the ability to remove the heat that the equipment generates – um, that's not just a business park. I mean, that's building a factory in space. Um, yeah. So, again, I mean, that's that's several factors of complexity above what's being proposed as a business park. Well, this is it. I mean, I guess you get nuclear reactors up there to provide power so you don't have to rely on solar, <laughs> but that that's a whole new kettle of fish going on. Well, see, even then, even then, because uh, our, our nuclear 
reactor power right now, unless you're dealing with a, a radiothermal isotope generator, um, is basically steam power. It's a steam plant mm. that uses a nuclear fire instead of burning something. The problem, again, uh, the problem is none of those plants work unless you can get rid of the heat. That's how you have to condense the water. So if you're in space, it actually becomes far more difficult to do something like nuclear power. Um, I, I mean, essentially the only thing that works is solar. And you can't create enough PV space to run a standard factory with just solar power. It's interesting. So we're going to have to wait for the space elevator, or is it? You know, is it <laughs> I'm all about the space elevator. Give me the space elevator, please, or or just a big railgun so I can shoot payloads into low Earth orbit. <laughs> well, um, Brianna raised uh, you raised an interesting point on this because you're right. The billionaire tax proposals did come out this week. Obviously, mm-hmm. the tech industry is is very likely. You know, the leaders of the tech industry are right in the firing line on this. Um, I mean, from the proposals that they have, uh, it doesn't. I mean, it's not as though you know Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos is going to be hanging around with a cup outside Grand Central Station, <laughs> asking, you know, trying trying to pay off the mortgage that way. But I mean. It does seem a bit rich that, you know, well, particularly for Elon Musk has been very vocal against it this week. And considering the guy, you know, did get a certain amount of government subsidies just to get his business off the ground, quite literally, um, it does seem slightly mawkish just to say, well, actually, yeah, but I'm not that keen on this tax business. I mean, <laughs> do you think it's going to th- go through? Is Congress actually going to act on this? I think it's up to uh, Joe Manchin, unfortunately, and I think we're going to get more information about the uh, text of the bill this week. And, you know, fingers crossed on that. Um, I I think uh, what I would like to see is this isn't my analogy, uh, but it's one that I've heard frequently. You know, a lot of these billionaires, it's it's almost a Batman situation where they uh, the company that uh, like Wayne Enterprises, where they make all their money, causes all these problems for society. And then you have to have the billionaires batman go out and stop all the consequences from it my personally what i would like to see is uh, more money taken from uh the billionaires where we as the public can kind of uh decide which way this goes uh and just one more thing about this uh robert as long as we're talking about the nitty-gritty details of uh how we actually do something like this in space one of the things that we've tried to figure out for a long time is how to stop the loss of muscle mass in space because you go up there and your muscles atrophy. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm so proud of my husband for is while he was working uh, at Novartis here in Boston, his name is actually, he helped develop the patent for one of the drugs that's going to do this. They came up with the drug and you can literally, uh, according to the patent, it causes you to just automatically generate all this muscle mass. And they see it and they're like, oh my gosh, people are going to be using this to abuse sports and it's going to like blow all (laughs) these... I'm saying that was my uh, first thought as well. (laughs) Right, yeah. No, no, I'm training for space. (laughs) But, But this drug could be very helpful for getting us uh, uh, long-term letting humans live in space. It's interesting. We have a bunch of drugged-up astronauts who are managing to... (laughs) But, I mean, it it is a serious problem. It takes, what, six to nine months to get to Mars? Mm -hmm. Uh, Same same to come back. That's an awful lot of muscle mass to lose. Um, And particularly if you're... I mean, also, thinking longer term, if you're actually born on Mars um and you grow up with that kind of gravitational stress you probably couldn't come back to earth unless you've got some serious muscle development going on because the gravity would just crush you mm-hmm. um i mean is it if, we, if we're going to become a spacefaring 
species, as I hope that we do, uh, it's obviously going to take some fairly serious physiological changes in, in humanity. Um, and also, you know, sort of where are we going in terms of how that's going to equalize, equalize out when things get back to Earth? But I have to say, Brianna, when you heard it, when I heard, when you told, told me about that drugs, my first thought was pro <laughs> sports people are going to be on this like a rat of a drain pipe. <laughs> if I'm remembering it correctly, they were trying to figure out ways to let sports teams try to detect it ahead of time because they knew it was going to be such a thing that would be abused. So put, put a marker uh, in the drug so that way. it shows up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, they all could also help elderly people, right? You fall and break a hip, it's because you lose muscle mass. So there we go. Yeah, we shall have to see. But, um, yeah, well, hopefully we'll get out there. Uh, you know, we're starving in the midst of plenty at the moment, considering that most asteroids contain <laughs> enough metals to deal with the markets for quite some time. But still, readers have pointed out that, of course, we could have the spinning space stations that would engender a certain amount of gravity, but that requires a massive space station to actually get uh, get it get in organised. I mean, I love 2001, but um, we're a long, long way from that. Arthur C. Clarke, actually... We- Oh, sorry. Go on, pardon. We don't actually have the material science to do that yet. Uh, spinning, spinning a space station is a way to generate a force that will resemble gravity, but the force that you would experience on the the hub of that spinning uh, structure would would tear any current material to pieces. Uh, so, yeah, it looks great in sci-fi, but not incredibly practical there, there actually is a show that deals with this really really well if you've read the expanse series of books yes. or mm-hmm. even watched the show yes. that's actually something that it builds into it uh, that that was uh, abraham put that into the writing of the show so uh, that much is actually realistic that's interesting because i mean when arthur c Clarke always regretted the um, introduction of the transistor uh because when he his idea for spe- for satellites it was based on valve technology, and that's why he thought that manned <laughs> space technology would, or sorry, manned space flight would become essential, basically, for the maintenance of satellites, because somebody would need to swap out the vacuum tubes. And mm. uh, once they broke, and in later years, he was kind of like, the transistor really mucked that up. You can just send machinery <laughs> up there now. It's, it's painful, but yes. Well, we shall have to see, and not even carbon carbon nanotubes could help us out of this one, it seems, but we will, hopefully the material scientists are onto it. Um, now, we've had other good news this week. It's uh, every three years, the uh, US uh, Copyright Office and the Library of Congress comes up with exemptions to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Uh, this basically says that uh, under the... Uh, DMCA, then you're not allowed, you're technically not allowed to tinker with stuff even if you bought it. Uh, the right to repair has been severely curtailed. And now we have a, a bunch of new um, uh, new exemptions of things that we can look at uh, and things that we can repair. They've clarified the language on whether or not you can repair, on what kind of vehicles you can repair, what kind of medical devices you can tinker with, and most importantly, for, from a security perspective, the kind of security tools that you can use. Um, Brianna, have you, in, in terms of how our latest, uh, this latest three-year uh, menu has come up, were you generally in, in positive or negative about the thing? Oh, 100%. It's fantastic. You know, my own state of Massachusetts has really led the way on right to repair laws. So uh, I was just absolutely thrilled to to see this. You know, I, I really think uh, listeners out there may not know, I love to uh, restore classic Porsches. Uh, it's just my favorite thing in the world to do. And the the tools 
and the lockout you increasingly have with more and more modern Porsches. I mean, it's it's gotten to the point where you can't work on your own cars. It's impossible to get the software uh, to do it. And even independent shops, uh, they charge such strikingly high fees for just the tools to go in there and fix it that uh, it's just not a very tenable situation. And let's be clear about what this is. It's a, it's a scam to get you to go spend three times as much at the dealer. Right. So um, I was very happy with the uh, the changes that they made. Uh, I think that all of us uh, don't just have the right to repair the things we own. I think we should have a, a right to access parts and tools to repair the things that we own. And I think if we're talking about seriously addressing climate change, addressing our culture of disposability has got to be part of that and uh, maintaining the things that we buy for longer. That's interesting. Uh, but Rita just pointed out that apparently in Massachusetts, Sub- Subarus stopped offering certain vehicles in Massachusetts following uh, laws on this. Are you aware of that at all? Or Yes. Uh, th- that is actually a thing. That's outrageous. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I mean, it, it really you know, is. Uh, there it is. Yeah. I mean, Padre, you'd love to tinker. Um, is this right up your alley as well? Oh, absolutely. I've been I've been down with the right to repair since uh, before the movement started. I mean, it, it comes down to a culture of ownership. Do you actually own the things that you buy? Are you leasing them? Are you borrowing them? Do you have the ability to do with it what you want after you've paid your money to own it? Um, and it's strange to see how companies have used copyright law that never, never intended to cover their industry, their product, their whatever it is that they're selling to keep you from doing that. Uh, I'm, uh, I'll use the uh, the car repair analogy because uh, I, I know Brianna is so down with it. Uh, I, I remember when I repaired my first vehicle, uh, it was a Datsun 310. It was like a 1984 Datsun 310. It was a, it was a piece of junk. But everything was manual. The, the only thing that was electric in it was the battery. That was literally <laughs> it, the battery and the spark plugs. And it was so much fun to tear it apart and put it back together mm-hmm. and learn how parts worked. Then I, uh, I got a, um, a Toyota Corolla. And I did, tried to do the same thing to it, but it already had an electronic harness in it that was tied to the electric fuel injection. I couldn't even buy the manuals to tell me how the stuff worked. That that actually required me to be a dealer to be able to buy it. And that's when, I mean, and this was back in the, the 90s. And that's when I realized, wow, this this is really, it's a it's a racket. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's the, it's, you purchase something for a tremendous amount of money and then you can only fix it with them. I mean, if they had their druthers, you could only use gas purchased from their dealerships. So, yes, I, I will push back. I will push for any right to repair. I will push back against any company that says that they have a right to tell me what I'm going to do with something that I purchased. Um, and I, I don't understand people who don't get upset about this. No, uh, I mean, no, no, right I, now, I, I have to calm down. I mean, people who are like, no, that's fine. That's fine. I'm like, I, I don't get it. What, what are you spending your money on? Uh, it, it, do you actually own that? Do you want to own it? If so, then you have to be with me on this. Well, I mean, this is it. When they were designing the original um, Apple, Steve Jobs was very much about, you know, we should not allow people to repair and upgrade their own kit. I remember when it came out and when uh, I mean, when, this, when the whole um, DMCA thing first kicked off, it was largely about music and music ripping. 
And um, you remember those old adverts when CDs came out? It's like, buy to own for the rest of your life. And then then it kind of changes. Like, well, you own it on this particular format. If you try and digitise it so you can listen to it elsewhere, that's against the law and you can't be able, you can't be allowed to do that. I think you're right, Brianna. This is, and Padre, this is basically a scam as far as I can see. Uh, but it just seems to be moving very, very slowly. I'm so happy that you brought up those the the old music industry commercials. Do you remember there was one that was like, "You wouldn't shoot a cop and steal his gun." <laughs> so why would you copy a track off the radio? I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> what did you just tell me? Oh well, if you and like, if you like same, that, same response. You really should watch the. Uh, there's a British show called The IT Crowd or The It Crowd, depending. Oh on yes, that. yes, yes. The the FBI the advert in that. It's like you wouldn't kill a policeman <laughs> and steal his helmet and then go to the toilet <laughs> in it and give it to him. It's just like it was beautifully done. But you know that kind of moral panic built up. Yeah. Um, and companies, as, as you say, Brown, have been very, very quick to capital. Right. Okay. It, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't... You know, one of the first things when you get a car is, is to ha- is to have a tinker around with. The original Model T came with its yeah. own, you know, toolkit and descriptions of how to use it. And from an ecological perspective, I think we've... we've, we've it's a massive loss in, in terms of disposable com- consumer technology. So there was some interesting stuff on that in terms of, you know, hopefully making things um, slightly better in... Uh, in in, in terms of, of usability. Um, yep. But yeah, we shall have to see how that develops. Um, speaking I feel so strongly. Oh, it's like, uh, I hope this isn't too Zen or spiritual, but I feel like it's so good for the soul to maintain things. Like if you, if you own a home, it feels good, right? To go out on Saturday and like do things to take care of your house. And I, I think it's, it's, I think we have an entire generation of people that see a car the same way that they see like an iPhone, something they drive and they don't have to maintain or service. You feel so connected to something that you work on or maintain. It's, It's more meaningful to you. And I feel like as we've moved more and more to this corporatized, um, you know, disposable, world of products, I, I really do feel like you lose something of your humanity along the way. Um, like anyone that's built their own PC knows you have more of an emotional attachment to that and making it work than you might have to a Dell that you just bought off the shelf. So I, I, I think this is, it is about value, but I also think it's about meaning, if that makes sense. I think that's a very good point. I mean, certainly the point you raise about the PC. I can remember when I built my first one. You know, you 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 baby the thing. You know, it's like you strap that static strap on every single time you go inside it. You tinker <laughs> around and you play around with the switches, and it's tremendously satisfying. And yeah. you know, I kind of. I kind of miss the days of PCs where, you know, you had the big box and you could swap stuff out and upgrade and that sort of thing. And yes, it made less money for manufacturers, but it was a lot more satisfying. Um, Padre, do you remember your first PC that you built? My first PC didn't have a case. Um, it, was a, it was a junk build from, from, from some dumpster diving. Uh, it was an 8088 <gasps> that uh, I, wow. had, uh, I had found like four or five different broken ones in a dumpster behind some computer store. Uh, and I found enough working components to, to put it together, but it didn't have a case. It didn't even have a proper power supply. So I had to, uh, to kind of rig up a power supply to make it work. Uh, and it had a disk drive that barely worked if I held it at the right angle. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I loved it. 
I mean, I, I, I wish I still had that thing. That's that's a piece of history for me. Oh, good grief. Yeah, I mean, we've all got that bit of technology that you've got to be exactly right on it. Otherwise, I mean, on this, one of my USB ports needs, I need to crack the back on it and, and do some repairs because it's, sli- I dropped it and it's slightly twitchy. And it's just a question of how much you move that little, that little Bluetooth, that little USB connection just to make sure it works. But, uh, well, we shall have to see how it goes. Right. Uh, coming up, we've got a whole variety of things. Android 12 is out, of course. And of course, Twitter's been covering this quite, in- quite, uh, intimately, and I, I'm curious to see what our panelists feel about it because I've been trying Android 12 out myself, and I maybe get a little bit ranty. But before I do, here's Leo. Our show today brought to you by. Thank you, Ian, for letting me interrupt. BlockFi. Well, Lisa, I'm so happy. Lisa brought her black card with her uh, going down to Mexico, and I love it. She loves it. I love it because it's a Visa signature card, so it's a great deal on international. Uh, there's no foreign transaction fees. There's no annual fee. You get all the benefits of a Visa signature card. Lisa likes it because she earns Bitcoin on her BlockFi card. Whether you're a crypto pro or total beginner, you can finally earn Bitcoin the easy way. Bitcoin Rewards. Yes, it's the world's first Bitcoin's rewards card from BlockFi. You can earn unlimited Bitcoin on every qualifying purchase you make. So as we travel around Oaxaca, we are earning Bitcoin. I love it. It's the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And it's just the easiest way to get Bitcoin. When you buy your groceries, when you pay your bills, when you fill up at the gas station, or, you know, when you fly down to Mexico. You can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all qualifying purchases. There's no rewards limit. It is a great card. It's a Visa signature card that you know that's the best. Everybody agrees that's the best. It's a beautiful black card, by the way, with a Bitcoin logo on it. I love that. And there's no annual fee, and we're not paying any foreign transaction fees. That's why we're using it uh, in Mexico or anywhere we go in the world. Now's the time to start or ramp up your Bitcoin portfolio. Of course, you know Bitcoin is worth a lot these days. And I think it's only going to go up. It was the best performing asset of the last decade. Outperformed the NASDAQ 100 by 10x, 10 orders of magnitude, according to Yahoo Finance. And BlockFi is no stranger, by the way. They're a leader in crypto. Uh, They're on Forbes FinTech 50 list in 2021. BlockFi has always been the easiest place to buy, sell, and earn crypto. And now earn crypto with your BlockFi Visa Rewards card. I love that. Hey, we got a special deal for our listeners, a bonus of $25 in crypto after you make your first purchase with the credit card when you sign up. And please use this address, BlockFi.com slash twit. That's a $25 bonus in crypto. It's deposited right in your account after you make your first purchase. But you have to use that URL so they know you saw it here. And so you get the deal, BlockFi, B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com slash twit. Start earning Bitcoin back on all your qualifying purchases today. BlockFi.com slash twit. Terms and conditions, not all will be eligible. Geographic, regulatory, and underwriting restrictions apply. Fees and terms are subject to change. Additional terms of service are available at BlockFi.com. BlockFi is a financial technology company. Banking services provided by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. And now, back to you, Ian. I'm going to go earn some more uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> okay, always nice, always nice to have Bitcoin. But uh, cheers, Dave. Right, okay. Um, so uh, last week we had Android 12 come out, 
this week we've had Android 12L come out. Um, both of you have been have you been trying it out? I mean, Brianna, you said you were a, a Mac. But when it comes to computers, you're Mac based. But in terms of phone, are you also iPhone or? I, unfortunately, when you're when you buy one thing in the Apple ecosystem, you buy the entire. <laughs> Uh, I do have to say, like, uh, I I think uh, I keep watching the demos of voice to uh, text uh, on Android and it is y'all just got us destroyed on this. Like Siri is the Yugo. Android is driving the Lamborghini when it comes to uh, uh, text to speech. (laughs) It is embarrassing how much worse we are. So um, it's a very pretty operating system, but I will leave opinions on this to the experts. It is interesting. The speech, the speech to text thing is, I used that in front of my stepfather, and he actually went out and bought a smartphone just because he wanted to do that. Um, it's it's a it's a remarkable thing. I mean, I've been trying out Android twelve, and I've got to say, I, I think it's a. Uh, I, I can't swear on air, but I think it's terrible. Uh, it's great from a security perspective, great in a lot of under the under the you know under the un, under the uh, hood type things. But the actual user interface looks like it's been designed by somebody who's just blind. I mean, it's it's terrible. Mm. Padre, have you updated yet, or are you? Um... I have, and then I downgraded. <laughs> really, you didn't wow. like it that much. Yeah, I. I uh... I get it. I understand why they're doing it. I, I I remember in 2011 when they first shipped Honeycomb and they mm-hmm. tried to do the same thing. They tried to make a push for the tablet environment. Um, they didn't have the apps back then. And so that's why a lot of people just didn't use it. That's why it, it failed. Because ultimately in, in Google world, if it doesn't immediately do incredibly well, they kill it after a couple of years. Uh, so I understand the dock. I, I get that. That that comes straight out of their Chromebooks. I understand the split screen. That's something that people have been asking for a while so they can take a familiar interface from the phone and, and put two of them on a tablet. Um, but like you, it just feels messy. It feels I – mean, I understand why they did everything that they did with the UI. I just don't like it. Now – Part of that might just be I have to get used to it. Maybe I, I have to commit myself to it, use it on a daily basis, and, and eventually all the, the positives will, will come out. But right now, it just feels like a really bad version of Android. Uh, and why would I use a really bad version of Android when I have a perfectly good version of Android that I could be using? Um, no, I mean, that's that's fair enough. I mean, with 12L, certainly it addresses... Uh, because I think it addresses something, uh, an issue with Chrome OS in particular, because now that... Android apps are putatively running on Chrome. Uh, I think that that's an aspect to it, certainly. Uh, and as you mentioned, twin screen, twin uh, twin screen devices. Um, now it's been what now, nearly two years since the first sort of foldable phones came out, and they are about as popular as a rattlesnake in a pinata. <laughs> but they uh, look cool. <laughs> they look really cool. Well, until they break, you know. I mean, until they break. Like, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I I understand materials technology. I'm a big fan of it. But the idea of a fo- I looked at that first foldable phone. And I thought, yeah, that's probably going to be broken within a year. Um, didn't take that long. No, <laughs> no, it didn't. Day. Unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, maybe Microsoft's got the right idea with the you know the sort of actually having two screens with a hinge in it but that's not really what a lot of silicon valley people want um i don't know i i've tried tried the dual screen phone i don't see that it really adds anything but i i i'm kind of worried about where google is going with android they seem to have really lost their way in some in some regards um 
just in terms of the features and the, you know, and, and the features and the usability of it. It just seems like Google's taken its eye off the ball. Do you think that's fair? Um, see, uh, I think this is going to happen anytime you have a maturing market. The same thing happened to the iPhone. Uh, once they had a UI that worked really, really well, any change that they called innovation could also be seen as, wow, what is wrong with them? Why did they, why did they fix something that wasn't broken? So I, I'm not going to hark on Google for trying. They're trying to make a better operating system. They're trying to include more features. They have made it more secure. They have added more hooks so developers have more things to connect to when they develop new applications and services for those products. But um, like you, I, I sometimes wonder, is there someone powerful behind the helm? Is there someone who's actually driving Android forward with a vision or is it, is it governance by committee? Because it kind of feels like governance by committee right now. It's a bunch of people saying, wouldn't it be cool if this and wouldn't it be cool if that rather than, well, what do we want the end experience to be for the user? Let's design for that. Indeed. I mean, uh, uh, Brianna, you're, I guess you're, you're sort of feeling slightly smug at this point because we're, we're both whining about our phone operating systems. But I mean, in terms of iPhone, uh, do you feel happy with it? Do you feel they're actually developing and moving the operating system forward or have they kind of reached something which works and will just tinker at the edges now? Yeah, I think it's more tinker at the edges, right? It's it's gotten so complicated, I think. Like, uh, I... I think that normal people just don't notice a lot of the features that they bring out year after year. Um, Looking back at at Android, I just have to say I had such a different reaction, like not being an Android user, but looking at the screenshots of it. I mean, it's just stunning graphical design. And it's, it's so disappointing to me to hear from you all that it's not a great experience because by every single press report, the Pixel and the Pixel 6 Pro are such amazing phones this year. So that's, that's really disappointing to hear. It's, uh, the, 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 the 6 is a, is a really tricky one because mm-hmm. I've cracked the screen on this and I, I, I use a Pixel 3 and I've cracked the screen. I figured, okay, now would be a, a good time to, um, you know, to upgrade. But, you know, the 5 looks good. It's got, a, it's got a headphone jack. And I'm sorry to be such an old-fashioned person about this, but I do like a headphone jack on a phone. I use the phone in the car an awful lot and it's quite handy for that. And I hate the idea of having to carry a dongle around everywhere. But, I mean... <laughs> Brianna, as an Apple user, you are used to dongle life, I, 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 I'm true. presuming. How, how disruptive is it? Uh, it's it's Well, for me, I think it, it may not be as bad for women because, you know, I carry a purse with me whenever I leave the house and I keep the $70, you know, official Mac uh, mm-hmm. USB-C to USB-A adapter, which is an absurd thing to carry with you uh, everywhere. So uh, I guess I'm just numb to dongle town at this point. <laughs> I'm 100% with you. Uh, it should come with uh, ports like a headphone jack. Yeah. Okay. If if numb to dongle town isn't the the title of the episode, I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> it, it it really should be. I'm, I'm sorry. That was just that's a classic line, which I'm afraid I'm going to have to steal at some point. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, look, uh, my daily driver is still this the six T uh, one plus because it still has a three point five millimeter port. I I don't want a dongle i won't use a dongle in fact i think if i have to move to dongles i'm gonna have to start wearing a a fanny bag again just to carry them (laughs) with me because i'm not gonna have that thing in my pocket and then lose it and suddenly i can't connect my headphones anymore it the the strange thing to me is 
when companies start looking at innovation as we're removing a port that everyone knows and loves and uses all the time, that just seems so strange and counterintuitive. Uh, but it's what's passing for forward-looking design now. I do yeah. find it odd as well. I mean, I was talking to somebody about this uh, who's in the industry. And it's like, well, look, it's quite thick. It's like, well, it's really not that thick. It's like, well, it's also, it, it's not great for things like dust and water protection. It's like, I'm pretty sure we can work a way around that. And besides... Yeah, mine's waterproof. Yeah. yeah you know, it's sort of water resistant. I mean, but yes, it's just, uh, it's it's a very odd setup. And I mean, I'm sure... You know, it's it's quite hand- Apple has shown that you can make a billion dollar business out of dongles, uh, and I, I think other manufacturers got that message loud and clear, and they're just like, really, okay, but um, but yeah, three point five works for me. We shall have to see how it works out. Y'all um, are so much smarter than I am. I have like seven pairs of AirPods because they, <laughs> the batteries in them die so frequently. And then it'll hold like uh, just a few minutes of a charge. And yeah, that's the thing that Apple Design forces you to do is to get involved in this $200 absurd headphone ecosystem. I really? Mean, so you're finding the batteries are dying that, that, that quickly? Oh, it's terrible. And you can't swap it out, right? You couldn't even go to Apple and say, hey, I have these first-gen AirPods. Please repair the batteries in them. Like, there's a recycling program, but it's not its not something they're even prepared to fix. So, you know, there's this uh, planned obsolescence of, uh, of AirPods. So, you know, God knows they've made bank from killing the headphone jacks. I don't think it was courage as much as, uh, you know, they needed the stock price to bump up a bit. Good grief, I had no idea that it was that bad. And looking at the things, I mean, they look almost impossible to repair. I mean, actually cracking one of them open would probably destroy them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, there's so, it's it's all glued together. You crack it open and it's done. Good grief. Well, on the other hand, it brings in a lot of shareholder value. So... (laughs) Now, speaking of shareholder value, I have to say it's been an interesting week for Activision. And, uh, Brianna, I'm pretty sure you've probably got a, uh, a view on this. Basically, um, Blizzard has cancelled 2020, uh, 2022 BlizzCon. Um, mm-hmm. The Activision CEO has taken a 99.9% pay cut until he, until he, to quote, has sorted out the diversity issue, whatever the phrase he used was. Um, the games industry in general has been as we discussed earlier, has been fairly toxic in terms of uh, sort of frat boy culture. But Activision has kind of become the poster boy for quite for, for an awful lot of things that were wrong. Um, Brianna, do you think this is actually going to change anything? Or is this just, again, you know, coming back to Facebook, corporate marketing again? Well, I, I think that Activision is a situation that is going to actively change because it's a different situation than Facebook. We've been talking about what's broken in uh, in Activision since Gamergate. The reason things are happening now is because regulators got involved. The state of California subpoenaed a ton of documents, found some horrific, horrific allegations. Just to repeat, one of the most serious ones, you have a woman that worked for this company who... Her boss basically sexually propositioned her. She eventually was sexually harassed so badly that it contributed to her suicide. And then after that point, that boss passed nude pictures of her around to her teammates for them to leer at. That's actually in the California documents. So 
you know, these are, are tremendously serious allegations. And the reason it was taken uh, seriously is because California regulators got involved. So um, from what I hear inside of Activision, I, I do think a culture is going to change. Um, I think that it's affecting their um, things like them trying to get uh, insurance because of the cost of it. I think that's going to get better. As far as uh, Bobby Kotick specifically in the salary cut, you know, when I ran for Congress and I looked up uh, donors that had a history of donating to people with the tech background, he was on my number uh, one donor list. We actually called his office quite a few times because he throws out so much money to people and most frequently to right-wing candidates. So, uh, you know, this is someone that has quite a bit of money. Uh, you know, he's gotten very rich uh, working at Activision, $150 million last year by many reports. So um, I see this as a an overwhelmingly symbolic move. Uh, but I think that uh, ultimately it's going to be the regulators and the lawsuit that are going to force Activision to make a change. It's interesting. I mean, he he said, "Oh, I'm going down to a sixty-eight thousand a year salary." It's like, yeah, you were awarded over one hundred and fifty million dollars last year, right. so you know you're not out shaking the cup. You can live on that for a while. I mean, Padre, it's easy for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That <laughs> so we're not going to go there. But what's your take on this? Well, uh, I'm with Biani in that uh, this is this looks like a facebook move in that they're just trying to get some good press out there to, to change the story but i think the uh, the enabler here is the fact that they were they are being sued by a state agency so you know they have to make these changes it's it's not we're doing it because we want to be good and because we see that it's better it's this is an existential crisis for activision i mean the if if those suits were to grow and if it were to gain speed it could really, really destroy the company. Uh, now, I, I think the pay cut that uh, that is a, a it's a PR thing because no matter how much pay he makes, he's still going to get awarded through his options. That doesn't go away. That's that's not written away. So, mm-hmm. if the company does well, he still gets paid millions. Um, so, uh, what, what I'm looking at is I want to see on paper. What are the diversity steps that they're going to make? What are, well, how are they going to handle diversity hiring? How are they going to handle complaints? Uh, are they actually going to strengthen HR to be able to work for employees rather than HR protecting the company? Because that was the biggest problem that we saw in, in the legal saga, which was HR was only there to make sure that it didn't go any higher than it needed to uh, – any complaint went higher than it needed to go because that would affect the, the price of the stock. So – if they can do that, if they can show on paper that they're making systematic changes, then I'll I'll say yes, kudos to you, good job. Uh, until then, I'm I'm very skeptical. I, gosh, I've just been incredibly skeptical skeptical about everything oh. this entire episode. I don't know why. <laughs> well, I, I don't think of it as skeptical. I think it's just a realist who hasn't been proved right yet. But um, now, it's an interesting point about HR. I, I, I do find, particularly with American companies, you kind of forget that HR. You know, you are a resource. You know, <laughs> they're not on your side. This is all about keeping management out of jail um, or out of being sued. And it's um, it's a very weird thing. Somebody was saying, you know, no one ever grow, grows up thinking, yes, I want to be an HR person. I wonder how people end up in it. <laughs> but um, 
I don't know. Yeah. Hopefully things will change with Activision. Um, yeah, we shall see. 100%. Uh, if I could just say one more thing mm, on sure. this. I, I just I want to put into perspective why this, this story matters, not just... Yeah, there's obviously the ethics concern. I, I think no one out there, no matter how cynical you are, wants to see a, a situation like like the one that happened with the woman that yeah. tragically uh, died by suicide. I am of the opinion, and I feel very strongly about this, that we have a larger innovation crisis in the video game industry. And I, I feel that the quality of games that we are putting out there are so laden and so hampered with these these mechanics like you know daily login bonuses uh you know pay to win mechanics dlc live subscription models uh you know ubisoft even this week had uh something if you bought far cry 6 and didn't play it enough they had the villain in that game emailing you at your personal email address saying, oh, thank you for leaving Yara in my capable hands. You couldn't stop me. So I feel so strongly that we have an innovation crisis in our field. And I think part of that is tragically, if you go and look at game studios, who are the people that make video games? I'm not trying to knock like straight white dudes here, but you're really, really oversampled at game studios. We had a major game studio announced this week. We're the only woman listed on the workplace ledger is the dog who is listed as the morale officer. And that is the, the, it's, it's the norm in our industry, tragically. So it's not just, I, I think that when, you only have people from a single perspective developing games. I think, unfortunately, you tend to see the same ideas and the same priorities happening again and again and again. And I think if we want our industry to be vibrant, if we want truly the best kind of games to come forward, if we want to have more interesting experiences than just Call of Duty every single year with slightly prettier graphics for the thousands of people you're murdering, I think it's really important that we are an industry where anyone qualified can come in the door and can do their best work. So I feel very strongly this isn't just about making Activision a safe working place. This is about making the game industry the very best version of that it can be, where everyone wins. People get to have safe careers, but you as a gamer get to play better games as well. Hopefully things will change. It's about, I'm not going to swear, but it's about time. Um, (laughs) We shall see. Um, Anyway. Well, let's, um, before we have a, we'll take a quick break and then come back and talk Windows XP because it's 20 Ooh. years since that operating system Ooh. came out. Yes, I know. And it's still in use in by far, far too many people. Anyway, before that, here's Leo. If you don't mind, Ian, I'm gonna, I got one more ad before we wrap things up on this uh, week's This Week in Tech. And thank you so much for filling in for me. I really appreciate it. You're doing a bang up job. Of course, Lisa and I are down in uh, Mexico and I got to tell you, uh, when I'm buying online, uh, whether I'm buying in the U S or buying in Mexico, I am using this next sponsor privacy.com. I've been a privacy.com user for years. 
before they were advertising with us because I love the idea of a credit card that is secure in one of two ways. You can make a burner card with privacy.com that can only be used once. Boom, that's it. So you don't ever have to worry about it being stolen or being overcharged. I often use, though, their merchant cards. I love this idea. The minute it's used with a merchant, it's locked to that merchant. So I use it for all my online transactions. I It's easy to share, by the way. It's built into privacy.com. You just say, I want to share this credit card. Why would I want to do that? Well, my mom, 88 years old, she cooked for me my whole childhood amazing cook but she told me uh, last year i'm too tired i want to want to cook anymore i said mom let me get dinner let me get dinner and i sent her a privacy card just click and share she didn't even have to have a privacy account to use it she put it in doordash and now anytime she wants a meal she just orders one they come they bring it to her and i'm buying I said, Mom, tip good, too, because I don't care. I want I want you to get the best service. I love it. It's completely secure. If it leaks out, I don't have to worry about that. It can only be used with that merchant ever. I can set limits, and I can pause the card. Now, that's really handy. I'm not worried about my mom, but it's not unusual for me to sign up for subscriptions online. You know, sometimes that can be hard to cancel. Uh, I use privacy. I get the security of locking that card into that particular subscription but if i'm done i don't even have to cancel i just pause the card or delete it and boom that's it they'll be declined and you see on the privacy website you can see all the times the card is declined that's actually useful in case somebody tries to use the card somewhere else it will be declined but you'll know uh it ties into your debit card or to your bank account i should let you know it's not a credit card you don't build up a balance it, it's an immediate you know it's like using a debit card it's an immediate use but it does appear as a regular to all the merchants as a regular credit card i think it's great for subscriptions great for using online great for using anytime you want to use a, a credit card but you don't want the bad guy to use it. i'll tell you you know i i signed up for a gym i wish i'd had a privacy card at the time I canceled the gym, but they kept charging me for, quote, trainer appointments. I didn't catch on for months. I called the credit card company. They said, well, it's been too long. We can't refund you. If I had used privacy, not only would I know that charge is going on, I could have hit the pause button and I wouldn't be out any money. I wish I had. A great way to control subscriptions, recurring payments. You could set a spending limit with the service so they won't overcharge you. You can catch them trying to, you know, add on and you can stop it. You can stop it. I just, I think privacy is the best way to go. It's easy to use. They have a Chrome extension, a Firefox extension that automatically fills in the information, generates a new card so you don't even have to exit that page. Uh, and sharing is easy. No copy and paste, no texting. It's its just click the share button when you're viewing a card, enter the email address. They get it as my mom did. She found it very easy to use. Your account summary is great. Uh, you have a choice when you uh, when you have it show up in your uh, checking account statement. You can either just say privacy.com or can say the merchant. I always say the merchant. That way I, it's easy for me to allocate, to budget, and so forth. You can even tag now. This is something new. They added custom tags so you can sort your card by category. And that's actually great because I use privacy so much. I've got dozens and dozens of cards, each of them either tied to a merchant or for a single use. And I, I love it. Uh, it's just the easiest way to do it. And the, I think the most secure. Protect your financial identity online. Use virtual cards. 
And this is the easiest way to do it. Privacy.com slash twit. Sign up for a new account. New customers automatically get $5 to spend on their first purchase. Privacy. P-R-I-V-A-C-Y. Privacy.com slash twit. Sign up today. You're going to love it. And now, my friends, it's time to go back to Ian. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Take it away, Ian. Okay, I'm off then. Right. <laughs> okay, well, Leo has been away this week, but uh, here's a quick roundup of things that you may have seen on, on the station this in the, in the last week. In honor of uh, Halloween, you can get the Ghostbusters Proton Pack. It'll be $400. Mom, remember that it's like you're an adult man. <laughs> That's why you spend your own money on it. Previously on Twit. Mac Break Weekly. Renee's got an M1 Max 14-inch laptop. In my stress test, it was just draw-dropping at first because of the numbers. ProRes, it was 10 times faster, like literally 10 times faster. This, to me, is redefining what my expectations are from a pro laptop. Tech News Weekly. Facebook has announced that it is rebranding and going by the name MetaNow. What Zuckerberg wants is a world where he's free of intermediaries. Why is Facebook so taken with this idea for the metaverse, something that you know basically has us living in VR and doing all of our computing there? And it's because Facebook controls the operating system. Windows Weekly. I got the Surface Duo 2. It's a super cool device. It's really nice, but I feel like this is truly a Generation 2 device so far from, from my very, very limited testing of it. And, you know, what they always say is Microsoft doesn't make a good device list in the third generation. I have a feeling that's going to be true. All about Android. Do you remember oh, yeah. Samsung had an event, actually? Did yeah. you recall this? Uh, the <laughs> unpacked, unpacked Part 2 happened last week. So you can now customize the Galaxy Z Flip 3. Um, it's the magical bespoke edition. Uh, the funniest hot <laughs> take I saw on that was somebody said, this could have been an email. Twit. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to argue that one one bit. Welcome back. And uh, there was some good watching to be had this week. Right, okay, this week also saw the 20th anniversary of Windows XP. Um, for those of us who were still using Windows 2000 at the time, it wasn't that big a deal. But if you're on Windows Millennium Edition, then it was a very, very welcome edition. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's an iconic operating system. It's still massively in use. There's a big, long tail of users out there. I mean, in terms of outdated technology, it's, it's one of those things that has hung around like a smell in a spacesuit. Um, <laughs> any Vatican systems working on it, Padre? Yes. Uh, actually, yes, but all of them are air-gapped. So we have a, a few machines that are still running Windows XP just because of some legacy software that will only run on XP or below. Um, but they are not connected to anything. So that's, that's the concession that we made. They're not even hooked up to a private network. They are completely standalone, uh, which kind of limits their usefulness. It is rather weird. I, I, was, I was down at uh, JPL for the Curiosity rover landing, and after, you know, we got the first shots back and everyone applauded and then they sort of closed down the meeting. But the default screensaver came onto the projection, the projector <laughs> and it was Windows XP. And you're like, you've just landed a ton and a half of rover on Mars and you're still <laughs> using Windows XP. It's uh, Brianna, did you have much experience with XP or were you Mac all oh, the way? Oh, God, yeah. That's oh, back okay. when I was doing network support for a, for a career. Uh, I, re I remember it 
like it was yesterday. I can't believe it's been that long. You know, one of the things that really strikes me is uh, when I ran for Congress here in Massachusetts, I personally dropped off. You have to get signatures to get on the ballot. And I personally went around to every single town's basically a clerk's office to drop off my signatures because I wanted to get to know people and it would be a fun event. And I was terrified, to be honest with you, (laughs) how many election computers were still running on Windows XP. Uh, You know, we talk, uh, I talked a lot about cybersecurity on my campaign. And here's kind of example one about how we may need to be spending a little bit more money on uh, infrastructure to make sure uh, we can't be hacked. So uh, fingers crossed that that uh, lucky streak continues. Well, this is it. But I mean, when, when, when XP first came out, it was it was billed as the secure operating system I mean, because yeah. Microsoft had had such problems with computer viruses really going rampant on its on its thing. It was just like, yep, this is XP. It's built on the NT framework. This is going to be the most secure operating system yet. And I think people are hanging wow, on to wow. that a bit too long. Um, it, it does seem, as you were saying, with the with the election machine uh, stuff, uh, the DefCon uh, voting hacking uh, sessions. They were still running Windows CE on some of these machines, but what is it, Padre, that you think XP uh, is still hanging around? Is it just the legacy software? It's just the legacy software, but remember, there were a couple of advantages to running XP. It was the first Windows OS that allowed for multi-monitor setups. Uh, It was the last Microsoft OS that allowed you to, to move setup files to either a hard drive or solid state, if you had one of those later on, and do a, com- a completely in-computer installation, a ridiculously fast. It also had no problem being mirrored from machine to machine to machine. It was before Microsoft added any of those protections. So as a whole, it is a fantastic testbed system. It is an operating system that I still use every once in a while. I will occasionally spin up an XP uh, instance Put it on the internet and see how quickly it gets owned and see what kind of new attacks the box experiences. Um, so it's still, it's still kind of fun. It's a versatile environment. It will run on very low-end hardware. Uh, I can move it from box to box to box without ever having to worry about whether or not I'm licensed for it properly. So, yes, it's, it's still in use. And, yes, it will remain in use for years and years to come. I mean, the, the same attacks that are working on XP machines now will probably be seen on the internet in about 15 years. That's interesting. I mean, how was it from a network topology um, standpoint, Brianna? I mean, did you, was it actually good, better to work with in 2000? I remember, yeah, it was an upgrade in a lot of ways. You know, we were figuring out, you know, technologies like DirectX back, back then. So, you know, the underlying, like, kind of reset uh, for the game industry was revolutionary at the at the time. Uh, you know, networking overall and getting office systems to talk to one another was tremendously more difficult back then. I don't know if you remember this, but trying to get Windows and Mac machines to talk to each other on the same oh. network, that was a an absolute nightmare back then. You had to go buy specialized software and, uh, oh God, I'm having flashbacks just remembering it. So, uh, you know, it was, for the time, it was very good. Uh, and I think it was clearly a groundbreaking product. I just, I, I, I think about it from a, a technology leadership point of view 
that we we need to I think we could be much better at incentivizing and funding uh, ways to upgrade our infrastructure in the United States as time marches on. I don't feel like that should be in schools. I don't feel it should be in voting systems. I don't feel it should be used at uh, DMV, something I saw one time. Uh, I think we need to better fund this uh, march forward with technology. It's interesting. It's it's amazing how long older tech hangs around, um, simply because it's convenient and easy to use. I mean, I, as I say, I was still using two thousand Windows two thousand in two thousand eight, uh, just for a gaming machine which wasn't you know connected to the internet because it was just convenient. You knew how to use it, and you could it wasn't you could futz around in the operating system, which I really liked. I, I do. This was what turned me off Apple's originally because back in the early nineties, you had to use ResEdit, which is kind of like trying to repair a nuclear reactor with a stone axe it's just it was a horrible tool but still but as i say old technology is hanging around and june is very much uh, on all the billboards all the adverts um i'm sure those the, those people that love it love it dearly i know my wife had a picture of sting in it uh, on her bedroom wall as a teenager um <laughs> Which I'm not at all, but haven't that's, never mind. That's, but, that's uh, troubling. <laughs> indeed, yes. But um, but apparently the the script for the current version was written on MS DOS Movie Master. Um, the writer it should be. Yeah, it, it all does. script should be written in DOS. <laughs> well, apparently he likes it because it's you know it's, it's secure and it's what he's used to, and he feels superstitious about it. I mean, it's it's for such a futuristic film, one has to wonder you know what's what the thinking behind is this. So, wow. uh, I mean, Padre, do you have a particularly old bit of tech that you're still very fond of and still use? Oh, what is the oldest? So the oldest piece of tech. Okay, it, so it's not a museum piece. Piece it has to actually be in use. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have a. Ah, I have a HTC, an MDA. It is a, a Windows Pocket PC phone. Oh, wow. From Pocket PC, I remember that. 2000, 2005, I think. Yeah. Okay, that beats... Yeah, that beats that beats mine. I think it's two thousand and eight is the older is one of the oldest portable hard drives I've got. Brianna, you're obviously much more cutting edge than we are, but I mean, any old tech hanging around in Massachusetts? I love vintage stuff. I have a. Uh, I'm looking at right here my uh, Star Trek Next Generation pinball table. From, oh, I spent so God. much money on that in university. Yeah, what, what year was that? Like 1993, <laughs> I believe. Uh, that's old school. Uh, and, you know, I'm a huge vintage gamer, so uh, I have every single video game system ever created, almost, and I, I play them all the time. So, come on over to my house, and we can uh, play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Together. I may well take you up on that. Although I gather I. I I'd probably be whipped hollow because is it true that you're still in the top 10 for the SNES platform? I unfortunately have been bumped down, but only because I'm focused on other games right now. Next time I come on Twit, I'm going to have my Tomb Raider 2013 run. My time's on yeah, this you're doing is a speed very run. promising. I, I saw am. you doing a speed run yep. and you're getting some great yep. times. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, figured out how to teleport through rule, through doors and sequence break the game. So a lot well, of fun. What's the time to beat? Uh, for that one, it's one hour. On console, it's one hour and 51 minutes. Good grief. When you consider how much time most people spend trying to learn that game, that's really quite <laughs> stunning. I mean, any oh, tips crazy. for the aspiring yeah. speedrunner? Oh, I'm sorry. Could you say that again? Oh, sorry. Have you got any tips for the aspiring speedrunner? I mean, what, what yeah, kind of things definitely. do you need to focus on? 
you know, pick a game that you really enjoy because you're going to be playing it a lot <laughs> and then go to speedrun.com, look at the top run for the game and watch an entire playthrough and then start learning the tricks about how you do that. So like for Tomb Raider, if you want to sequence break the game, you have to back up on a door and then you have to get 51% of your geometry through the door. So you scramble backwards until Laura reaches a state where her hands are just twitching in the game. <laughs> and then you scramble forward and press backwards simultaneously, and she'll roll through the geometry and be pushed out of it. So uh, watch it and learn those tricks and then just copy what other people have done. And what you'll find is if you then put more time into it than they do you'll get in the top 10 interesting i mean padre you're as a man of the cloth you have obviously a very busy time but any games you'd be tempted to speed run through no but i do often twitch through doorways that's just kind of how <laughs> what I do. it's it's a thing <laughs> ah it's got to be done it's got to be done but uh, sadly me, I'm the, the only game I have time for these days is Age of Empires, and doing a speed run on that is still not very speedy at, at all. Um, we shall have to see how it goes. Actually, while we're on the gaming front, uh, um, there's interesting stuff going on with Stadia at the moment. Brianna, can you mm-hmm. fill us in on this? Um, this, I mean, Stadia was sort of pushed out there. It's going to be the next big thing. It's going to be great, and then it just seems to have died away. What's the what's what's going on with that? I, I haven't seen the story. You tell me. Oh, okay. I, I mean, basically, dead. my understanding is that Stadia is um, pivoting, which is always, which is never a good thing <laughs> to hear. Um, but they're going to become a sort of white label game streaming platform. Um, oh. But I do this whole the whole Stadia concept seems slightly optimistic to say the least um have you tried not as crazy as you may think though um one of the things that we've been doing a lot more on nintendo switch is uh, if you don't know switch is made on i believe it's the tegra architecture whereas every other game in the industry is made on x86 and one of the ways they've gotten around switch's uh complete lack of power is basically doing what Stadia does, doing cloud computing and having, uh, you know, a, a server compute everything and then stream it to your Switch. And those games have done remarkably well on Switch. So I could actually see that being a viable uh, future for this. Uh, Maybe not on the big consoles, but for more uh, constrained hardware, that could definitely work. Interesting. Okay. Have you tried it out, Padre? I have, and um, when I first played with it, I was actually impressed. Uh, a lot of the lagging issues that I thought were going to be a problem weren't a problem. It helped me through part of the pandemic because it was a, a fun device to play with. Uh, but the day after I received it, I already wrote the obituary for Stadia, Stadia because I'm, <laughs> I, know Go- I know Google, and they just don't have the attention span to make something like that work. Uh, it, the, the thing about running a, a game delivery service over the internet is you have to be constantly pushing and refreshing your catalog and bringing in new talent. And that's why they're making it a white label. They're making it a white label because they realize, oh, that's a lot of hard work and that's a lot of continuing mm-hmm. work. It's not just one project and then you're done and everyone loves it. It's, well, what are you going to do today and the next day and the next day? Uh, and Google does not do well with those types of products. Google is a set and forget company. They want to be able to do their their uh, product development, push it out there, and then just start cashing the checks. 
So Stadia was never going to be that. It, it's it's just not possible. I I don't know if I agree with that though because I'm thinking through it, and you know Google does like something they do very well is bringing like architecture and services. Like I think there are very few people that would argue uh, Google is not drastically better at services than say Apple is. And if you start thinking through all the possibilities for that kind of um, you know, client-side rendering of things like this, I, I can really see an explosion of that. Uh, you may not know this. Uh, the the uh, game industry is really experiencing a shortage of talent right now because there are so many new players in our field. They're trying to gobble mm-hmm. up as many uh, game developers they, as they can. Uh, Netflix, for in- instance, has announced that they're going to make a very big push into games because they see uh, experiences like Fortnite being a very big threat to their business model. Do you really think everyone that like subscribes to Netflix is also going to have like a $2,000 PC with an RTX 3090 inside of it. I could see that kind of architecture having a very useful market for companies like that. So I, I'm, I'm not cynical about this. I think it makes sense. That's interesting because, I mean, <clears throat> we had the Intel releasing this week, the Alder Lake, which they're saying is their fastest gaming chip ever and the rest of it. And there is, as you say, there, there is a, a huge market uh, or at least a very valuable market in terms of gaming PCs, and gamers are cutting edge when it comes to the hardware in general, which is why the Stadia idea never seemed to work. But I guess, yeah, I mean, they're going slightly wider. <clears throat> then it, it does have that, that opportunity to uh, to maybe get out there. But um, let's face it, if you're a, a serious gamer, you're always going to want your own rig, surely. Right. I'm not even a serious gamer, and I want my own rig. <laughs> I, I, I basically have been playing one game for the last two years, and uh, it's not exactly demanding. But I love having it on my uh, on my my own setup. I used to love going around trade shows and seeing like the you know gaming PCs with liquid cooling systems and the rest of it, and you were just like, I, I really want one, but I just can't justify the cost. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh well, it's, it's the enduring story of technology, I believe. But. Uh, yeah. Okay, right. Well, we're going to wrap things up, but uh, thank you very much to my guests, Brianna Wu and Padre. Oh, Marvellous to see you both as ever. And uh, we've, we've had a very good time at time of it, I hope. Um, people may be slightly concerned that this is being done on a Saturday, but it's Halloween tomorrow. Parents are going to have to deal with hopped up sugar, kids hopped up on sugar, and, and I should imagine a wee bit of vomiting going on if people have overindulged, but still. Um, so this is why it's on on Saturday, but usually Leo is recording the show on Sunday between uh, 12 and 5, 12 p.m. and, uh, sorry, 2 p.m. and, I'll be, yes, 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. Uh, on Sunday pacific time and uh, you can watch in and of course come in live on the chat room on, on our discord server and uh, one day when the virus is finally abated we can reopen the studio and allow, and allow people to come in and watch the show as, as it was meant to be watched in person uh, and it really is always fun um, seeing people and seeing people actually come down and come into the studio but those days will come again i am quite sure in the meantime another twit is this in the bag is amazing the twit.